We're going to be in Isaiah 58. If y'all would like to go ahead and turn there. Isaiah 58. Let's pray. Lord, we, are, um, we gather before you today as a very needy people. Lord, the riches that we have experienced because of a relationship that you have entered into with us are um, beyond words. Lord, your um, ways that you have shown us, the mercy that we've received, I pray that it's never commonplace to us. Each of us woke this morning with mercies that were new to equip us for a work that you call us to. Lord, this morning, just as we're singing, I pray that you find us worshiping in spirit and in truth. I pray that we're not honoring you with our lips when our hearts are far from you. Lord, a room full of people just saying the words, I would lay down my life just to be by your side. I would lay down my life just to be by your side. Lord, I confess those are hard words to sing. There's lots of areas of my life that I prefer to hold on to. But I pray that the word would continue to break that. I pray this morning as we engage your, uh, your very frank, very stern rebuke of a people uh, who's who were honoring with their lips, but their hearts were far. I pray that we would see the truth rightly as you would have us to see it. I pray that you would communicate through me as you would see fit. And I pray that uh, I'd be a vessel of mercy that's poured out and out of the way. Lord, we desire to see you and your ways this morning. We love you very much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 58. We're going to be focusing on verses 1 through 9. And the title of the sermon this morning is What God Expects from His Vineyard. So let's look at verse 1 through 9, Isaiah 58. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their transgression to the house of Jacob, their sins. Yet they seek me daily. They delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed, to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him? not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and speaking wickedness. You could call this a social justice message. But I would prefer you not to. It's more appropriately appropriately considered a gospel message. The reason for that is that social justice, like what's spoken of here that we'll explain further, social justice finds its true meaning and its worth within the gospel. And the gospel, likewise, is incomplete without social justice. When I say social justice, I'm referring to things like feeding the hungry, visiting the orphans and widows in their affliction, Clothing those who need clothes, housing the homeless, benevolence ministry, the very practical forms of showing God's love. Too often we see people abandon the local church and the gospel for the sake of social justice. Or we see the people abandon social justice for the sake of the gospel, which is what they're guilty of in Isaiah 58. What I believe that we're meant to see today in Isaiah is that they go together If we were to ignore all that God has chosen to say about poverty and hunger 
and justice for the afflicted, we would have to overlook some 2,000 breathed out scriptures, God-breathed scriptures. In John 15, we've been considering, we've been in John 15 for a few weeks now, and we've been considering what it means to abide in the true vine. So this morning, think of yourselves as members of a vineyard. If you are a child of God, if you're following the Lord, think of yourselves as members of his vineyard. It's appropriate to where we've been in John 15, abiding in the true vine. Members of his vineyard, planted by the hand of God with specific fruit intended in the harvest. Isaiah 5, 7, earlier on in the same book of Isaiah, Isaiah 5, 7 states, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. The people of God are a vineyard planted by the hand of God, but the fruit does not match up in Isaiah God has planted a vineyard by his hand, and his vineyard is this people, and he said, it says this picture of God looking out over his vineyard saying, I look for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. The fruit is not matching up. But in Isaiah 46, God reminds us that he will always accomplish all of his purposes. So if we see something going on where it seems like it doesn't match up, what we can be sure of is God always accomplishes all of his purposes, what that means for us is that he will redeem a people and they will live in the way that he tells them to. God is surveying his vineyard and assessing what the problem is. It's been sadly noted over time that the people of God are more often known by what they don't do rather than by what they do. Think about how ridiculous it would be to walk through a vineyard. Remember, we're thinking of ourselves as a vineyard this morning. Think about how ridiculous it would be to walk through a vineyard, a beautiful vineyard, and say, well, I don't see any nutrient deficiency. Well, I don't see any fungal diseases. And that's it. That's all you got to say about a beautiful vineyard you just walk through. What matters is what is there. Consider the growth. Consider the work that went into planting the vineyard. Consider the generations of fruitfulness. Consider the health of the vine. Consider what the vine dresser intended for his vineyard. These are the things that a vineyard should be known by. Not by what's not there, but by what is there. So look at verse 1. And we'll walk through this. Isaiah 58, verse 1. Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet and declare to my, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob, their sins. Verse 1 is in response to the wickedness of Israel. And what God is essentially saying here in this verse, God is speaking to the prophet Isaiah and saying, say to my people this. But he's not just telling him what to say. He's telling him how he needs to say it. He's saying, these are a thick-skulled, disobedient people right now, and they're persevering in their disobedience. You, you can't just say it gently. You guys should, should really be better about these things. Lift up your voice like a trumpet, right up in their face. God's saying, get up all up, all up in their grill and say to them, you got to stop living this way. you got to stop paying attention to only what you want to pay attention to. He's saying, this is what you say, and in fact, you have to say it in a certain way. God's saying, sometimes it's important that you lift your voice and, and say things with a, with a passion and with a, a specificity that is important so that they can hear what needs to be heard by God. All up in their grill. I've never used that phrase before in a sermon. <laughs> to understand Isaiah 58, we need to have a little background. In our Bible, we have what's called the major prophets and the minor prophets. The main difference, with the exception of Lamentations, is that the major ones are longer and the minor ones are shorter. Isaiah was a prophet that spoke to the Israelite people on behalf of God over the course of five different kings. So go with me here. We need a little history to understand what's going on and why is this guy prophesying and why, didn't, why is he speaking on behalf of God and why are they doing wrong things when God's clearly speaking to them through someone like Isaiah. And what happens is Isaiah is prophesying over the course of the reign of five kings. And it happened about 700 to 750 years before Christ. The first king was King Uzziah. 
He was a good king. You've heard Ben talk about through the judges in First and Second Kings in the Old Testament where it's like good king, good king, bad king, bad king, good king, bad king, bad king, good king. And there's these ups and downs and ups and downs in the leadership. And God is speaking his truth so that his people can walk rightly no matter if it's a good king or a bad king. God has a way you're supposed to live. The first king was Uzziah. He reigned for uh, 52 years. And it's said of him that he restored the splendor of Solomon from, from about 2,000 years before. And he was a good king. And in Isaiah 6, most of us are familiar with that passage. It says, in the year King Uzziah died, that's when Isaiah sees the Lord. And he says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We've heard that. It's interesting because there's a good king and there's a threat to, to a temptation to put your hope in the good king. But even the good kings die. All the kings die. And when that happens, Isaiah gets to see the king of kings. He gets to see God. And this begins this ministry where he's speaking to the people what God wants them to hear. After Uzziah was Jotham, his son, he was a good king too. And essentially he spent 16 years taking what his dad had done and continuing it. But then he had a son, Ahaz. He was bad, not bad good, bad, bad. Not a good king, evil. And he reigned for... uh, 16 years as well, and he made deals with the Assyrians. When the Assyrians grew in imperial desire and imperial strength, they pushed within eight miles of the Jerusalem border. And what happened was Ahaz said, well, I don't think I'm going to put my hope in God. I'm going to put my hope in the Assyrian emperor because, well, they seem pretty strong and they're pretty close. And so what he did was he actually sent Israelites to Assyria to check on the aesthetic worship that they preferred and to bring back Assyrian gods total train wreck of a mess there. Rather than leading Israel in the way that God would have him, he's saying, no, let's, let's make a treaty with them, pay tribute to them, and let's, y'all go check out their gods. Go see what they're doing. What's their worship center look like? Let's go do that. It's a mess. All the while, Isaiah is speaking the word of the Lord to the people, even when the new king didn't agree with God. The next king was Hezekiah. He was a good king. Hezekiah did not agree with the way that Ahaz had done things. And Hezekiah said, sorry, Assyrian emperor, we're not going to pay tribute to you anymore. We're not going to do what you want us to do. And we're certainly not going to worship your false gods. We're going to worship the one true God. And that provoked the Assyrians. And they surrounded Jerusalem with 185,000 troops. And like a true terrorist, the Assyrian emperor comes up and he he starts speaking to them in the Hebrew language and mocking their God. And the leadership of, of Israel says, can you speak in Aramaic so that our people don't know all exactly what you're saying? And he says, uh-uh, I want to speak in Hebrew, and I'm going to terrorize y'all. I want man, woman, and child to hear what's happening. And he proceeds to tell them, hey, what about these people? They said their God was going to save them. What happened? Oh, yeah, we crushed them. What about these two uh, villages over here? Their God was going to save them. We dominated. What makes you think your God's going to be different? And he proceeds to mock God. And what happens? Hezekiah says, um, Isaiah, what should I say? And Isaiah says this in verse 37, 36. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. You're not just making a mockery of us. Our God's not a false God. He's a real God. And he has real ears, unlike your God who can't hear you. And so our God is a real God. And guess what? He just heard you mocking him in the Hebrew language. Bad deal for you, Assyrian guy. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. Hello. And when people arose in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies, just as the Lord prophesied, or just as Isaiah prophesied by the Lord. 185,000 dead. Well, you can imagine he was a little shaken, right? So what does he do? He goes home, and he says, worshiping my God before was good. I'm going to try to worship him even harder now. And he goes into the fake temple and worships the fake God, and his two sons come in and cut him down, just like God said. It did not work out for him to mock the Lord. After that, after Hezekiah was a bad king, Manasseh, he reigned for 55 years. He did not like what Isaiah had to say about false gods, and he imprisoned him, and it's it is, tradition says that um, he had him sawn in two. So in Hebrews 13, when you hear of those saints who were even sawn in two for their belief, it's referring to Isaiah. So this is our context. Ups and downs and weird economy and weird leadership. 
Israel's in captivity. They've been conquered by the Assyrians at the end of their rope, and they're really trying to get right with God because they've had centuries of bad leadership and bad kings and hard-heartedness and, and total disregard for all that God says. They'll take in some of it, what, what works for them, but not all of it. That's our context. So look at verse 2. Remember, God has just told Isaiah, get in their face like a trumpet and scream to them their transgressions. And in verse 2, we see Israel's transgressions. Yet they seek me daily. This is a terrifying verse. Yet they seek me daily and they delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Well, that sounds kind of good, right? They're doing some good stuff. I thought we were declaring to them their transgressions. And what we're seeing here is that they are way off the mark. They were seeking God daily. What are their transgressions? They were seeking God daily. They delighted in knowing God's ways. But look at that phrase, as if they were a nation that did righteousness, as if they had not forsaken the judgment of God. This is a very spiritual people, spiritual, who love hearing new things about God. They showed up and were eager to hear from the preacher. Tell us more. Read to us from the book. And they talked about these things as they walked together during the week. And they would gather the next week to learn more about God. They delighted to draw near to God. So what's the problem? The problem is that their religion did not have an ethic They were not having hands and feet, a way of living that actually reflected rightly what God had called them to. Their religion did not have an ethic, just really, really great, divine, God-given ideas with no fruit. That's a tragedy. James calls us to show our faith by our works. He says, don't do a whole lot of works to prove that you have faith. To show your faith by good works, done in faith. At this point in Isaiah 58... God's people prefer to just talk about their faith. There's no works, there's no proof, there's no authenticity. This is the epitome of being hearers of the word and not doers of the word. Look at verse three. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. What happens here is the pious Israelites question God. They say, God, we're fasting and we're hungry. Why don't you like what we're doing? We're all doing it. We're all here. God, why? Why? They don't like the feeling of God being distant. They don't like the feeling of God not being near to them. And halfway through the verse, God interrupts their pious arguments and and explains that they do what they do for their own pleasure. Because if it were really about God, they would be doing what God commanded. Instead, they've conveniently chosen to overlook a large portion of what God has commanded of the children of his vineyard that he planted with the expectation of particular fruit. They've overlooked that. And God interrupts them in the midst of their very pious arguments and says, let me tell you what you've done. In the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and you oppress all your workers. Is it okay to show up and to go through the motions and to desire to be near to God and to, light, and to delight to draw near to God and still it be about your own pleasure and you still oppress your workers? Is that okay? God says no. Look at verse four. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. God explains their transgressions even further. Essentially, he says, your day of worship does not match your day of work. You seem pious when you gather with the people of God, but you're still a jerk at the office. And more than that, you treat your coworkers and you treat strangers like dirt. And you're violent, hitting with a wicked fist. That's not how my people are to live. Rather than caring for the afflicted, you afflict. What is that? Rather than showing justice, you perpetuate the cycle of injustice. That's not what I called you to. It's great that you're here. We're glad. You're going through the motions. Okay, that's not enough. Look at verse five. God turns the attention back to himself. 
He's heard the pious arguments. He interrupted him. He didn't let him finish. And he turns the attention back to himself in verse 5. And this should make us tremble. God says, is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast? And a day acceptable to the Lord? God turns the attention back to himself and essentially says, this is what I call a fast. This is what I call authentic religion, authentic worship. This is what I call fruit as the one who planted this vineyard. This is what I call obedience. What about you? What do you call it? Throwing down. That's what God's doing right here. Throwing down. That's what I call it. What what do you call it? You think we're seeing eye to eye. Well, let me make it very clear that we are not. You are not doing what I commanded of you. And in verses 6 through 9, God reminds them, this is what I commanded of you. Stop overlooking it. Stop ignoring it. Stop acting like it doesn't matter because you're very religious in your actions. Stop it. This is what you're supposed to do, verses 6 through 9. This is the heart of this passage. Pay close attention. Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke and let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? What do you think they're thinking right now as they hear this? They're thinking, we show up for worship on time every week and we're fasting. Who, what? The homeless, the hungry, seriously, we're going back to that again? And God's like, seriously, we're going back to that again. (laughs) Bring the homeless poor into your house. Interesting. It's not just house the homeless. What does it say? Bring the homeless poor into your house. that a challenge for anyone this morning? It is for me. When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of wickedness. God clarifies the fruit that he desires to see from the vineyard that he planted. As I share what God reveals, here's what I want you guys to be mindful of. And this is very important because if we lose sight of this, we're going to be guilty of the same thing the Israelites were guilty of in Isaiah 58. There's two parts to each of these truths. There's two needs that need to be met. There's a physical and spiritual aspect to each of these. John Piper, in reference to these verses, he makes a statement. He says, in addition to the all-important need of faith and forgiveness and personal holiness, there are five kinds of human need mentioned here that Isaiah and Jesus are passionately concerned about. They're not just random things over here in the if-you-got-extra-time bucket. These are things that Isaiah, as he communicates God's message for the people, and Jesus, as we saw it lived out when he came to earth, they are passionately concerned about at least these five things that are mentioned here in this passage. What are the five things? Number one, loose the bonds of wickedness. Help people to be rid of the things that are physically holding them back from life. The evil that they've been yoked to, where if they're trying to pull away and move forward in faith, they're yoked to something and it's pulling them back. The evil that they've been yoked to, some voluntarily, some against their will. An example of involuntary would be like an orphan who's been neglected and he needs a home and he needs a family. Number two, feed the hungry. I'm keeping these short because I don't want to complicate it. Feed the hungry. Three, house the homeless. More specifically, bring the homeless poor into your home. Four, clothe the naked, those who need clothes. Five, respect those who have been disrespected or are not respectable. Show respect to them. This is hard. This is very hard. Hear the voice of God. What's he saying here? With all that's going on, 
with all of the ups and downs in life, with all of the changes in the economy, with all of the new theology to learn, with all the new books there are to read, with all of the glory of God that there is to behold, this is who you are. A society characterized by justice, fairness, and concern for the poor. Do you know any who are being treated unjustly? Do you know any poor people? Have you engaged any hungry people? This is the fruit that is to come out of my vineyard by my design, is what God is saying. This is the fruit that is to come out of my vineyard by my design. Not just the individual members, but also in the form of a community ethic. In this very real world of threats of war and changes in leadership, this is not just what you do spiritually, though that's important. It is also what you do physically. Physically show justice to the afflicted. That is the people that we are as we are called by God to it. So why does God seem so concerned with physical care? Isn't it just the soul that really matters? Is it? Why does God seem so concerned with physical care? Isn't it just the soul that really matters? I was thinking about going and talking to someone, what it would be like to go and talk to someone and say, I care about your soul, and I want to make sure that you know who Jesus is, and I want you to know that this life is, 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 has no worth if, if not for Christ, and I want you to have a relationship with Jesus, and I want to show you this, and I want you to walk in it, and I want your life to be changed. And then I, I pictured that person looking at me and saying, I'm hungry. Can I have a sandwich? And he's saying, no, that doesn't matter anymore. It's your soul that matters. Are they really going to believe that I care for their soul if I neglect their body? This is where we have a tendency to make a huge mistake. When we come to a knowledge of eternal matters, a knowledge of eternal matters, of the way that our God works, when we gain understanding into the ways of a sovereign God, it does not mean that the physical and temporal have no worth anymore. It does not mean that we only care for people's souls to the neglect of their bodies. Consider that all things physical are created things, created by a creator. God does not say, from before time, I made each of you in a certain way. Your eternity is sealed, and what happens on earth is of no significance. I never heard him say that. Quite to the contrary, he's very involved in creation as creator. Consider what God has done. And then we'll consider what Jesus has done. First, in the beginning, God created stuff, physical stuff, that has significance. He created. It says in Genesis that God made trees pleasing to the sight. Have you ever looked at a tree and thanked the Lord? Hey, that is pleasing to my sight. Or wondered, why is that so cool? This is pleasing to your sight. It was made that way. God made trees pleasing to the sight. He made them so that you can appreciate the physical that points to the creator. He planted a garden and placed Adam and Eve in that garden. Not a spiritual garden, but a real garden. Where they could eat choice fruit that pointed them to their creator. Remember, there's temporal and eternal truth to each of these things. When they sinned and were ashamed, God covered their shame by clothing them in the skins of an animal. That goes further too. We'll talk about it in a minute. Consider what Jesus has done. Jesus took on flesh. I'm wanting us to see in what God has done and what Jesus has done that it's not a matter of what God did from before time began is all that really matters. We're in this world. It stinks. It's always going to stink. It's never going to get any better. And one day it'll all go away and finally we'll be in heaven. No, he's redeeming this world. It'll be a new heavens and a new earth. There's redemption happening right now. Jesus took on flesh. He fed the multitudes. He fed them. Now, one time he fed them quite miraculously, and they showed up the next day, and he said, you're just here for the food. Get out. So he showed some wisdom and discernment in how he helped, which we'll talk more about next week. But he fed the multitudes. His first miracle was what? He turned water into wine. As Ben says, not some sherry cooking wine, fine wine. Turned water into wine, first miracle. He healed. He brought the dead back to life. If the physical is of no significance, that's just cruel. Why would you do that to Jairus' daughter and to Lazarus? Just let him go. 
He's showing you something. The Gnostics were guilty of separating the flesh and the soul. The result was a lot of wicked sinning because they said, well, my soul is square with God. Flesh doesn't really matter. There's, there's troubles you fall into when you separate the two. Those who are reformed and reforming in their theology, reformed and reforming in their theology, who believe in a sovereign electing God, I said it, they've been given a really sad nickname over the years. You know what that nickname is? The Frozen Chosen. You ever heard that before? The Frozen Chosen. Frozen. Not doing much anything, but chosen. Frozen Chosen. The nickname indicates that this theology makes people less loving and less willing to help the afflicted because, well, all that really matters is their soul, and if they're going to be saved, they're going to be saved. And if not, then they're not. But knowing how God works should make us not less eager to help others. It should free us up to do even more. We got to see this. Don't be the frozen chosen. We should be freed up knowing that there is a work that goes on that goes beyond anything we could ever do. We're freed up to love more, not less. God does a work in people's souls that we are incapable of doing. What we focus on is what he commanded of us. I wanted to just make this message real short. I wanted to get up and I wanted to say, God says, feed the hungry, house the homeless, clothe the naked, break the bonds of the oppression, and, and respect the unrespected. Anyone have a problem? God said it. And then just sit down. Expect we'll go do it. We focus on what he's commanded of us. He does a work in people's souls through the obedience of his children that we are incapable of doing. If my all-knowing, all-powerful God has told me to do something, I better do it. If he says feed the hungry, I better feed the hungry. Interesting, a quote from Calvin, leader of the frozen chosen. Calvin said this, how frivolous a thing it is to boast of knowledge when love is wanting. How frivolous a thing it is to boast of knowledge when love is wanting. What that says is you don't just sit and boast in the things that you know about a sovereign and mighty God at the expense of those who don't know it, but you do what God did. Make a sacrifice on their behalf. Take time to get to know them. Don't boast of your knowledge. Love is wanting. It's frivolous if you boast of your knowledge when people are lacking in love. Richard Stearns, the president of World Vision, said that Jesus asked much more of us than just believing right things. It's not what you believe that counts. It's what you believe enough to do. It's pointing to work of believing on Christ. And that comes with commands. Turn to 1 John 2. Keep your finger in Isaiah. Turn to 1 John 2, 3 through 6. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. Verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him, here the true vine, John 15, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So how did Jesus walk? This says, whoever says he abides in him, him we know is the true vine, as we've studied John 15, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So how did Jesus walk? Did he only come to earth to care about physical well-being for a little while? Was that why he came to earth? Did he come to earth only to care for a soul and neglect body? Was it a combination of both? What does it look like? Remember, the temporal and the eternal are not completely separate. And a good understanding of one leads to a clearer understanding of the other. What that means is that God's love goes beyond words through the physical it goes beyond our words and our actions through the physical, revealing truths about the eternal, which he can reveal. 
By his design, there is an ethic. Consider what it would be like if God's love was only a school of thought or an idea or a concept. Consider that. What if God's love was just an idea or something that we knew a little about but never saw in action? We would not know Jesus Christ if God's love was just a school of thought and a concept. Jesus, in a sense, is the fruit of God's love, the embodiment and ethic of the love that God has for his children. He is love. We find our kingdom ethic in Christ. He came and dwelled among a disrespected and unrespectable people. This is a picture of he loves us not because we're lovable, but because he's love. He came and dwelled among a disrespected and unrespectable people and showed respect. Not that they deserved it. Jesus came and clothed the naked. He provided a home for those without one and he fed the hungry. Much of this to a people who did not reciprocate the love. Much of this to a people who did not reciprocate the love. But the love of Christ is not only toward the physical body. He didn't just come here to make us feel better. To make sure we had clothes in a house. That's part of it, but not all of it. In not neglecting the temporal, Christ reveals truths to us about the eternal. In breaking the bonds of earthly affliction, number one that was listed there, in breaking the bonds of earthly affliction, we are led to understand the eternal bondage of the soul to sin that can only be broken in Christ. See the eternal significance and how it is better understood by seeing that temporal. Yeah, I'll help you break the bonds of affliction, but look, your problem goes deeper. It's sin that can only be broken in Christ. In feeding the temporal hunger, Christ reveals a hunger in the soul that can only be quenched by the bread of life, which is Christ, which is eternal. In clothing the naked, like he did in the garden, Christ covers earthly shame but reveals a deeper nakedness and shame before God that can only be covered by your soul being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. His righteousness counted as yours. In providing a home for the homeless, Christ reminds us that this earthly home is temporal and there is an eternal dwelling that exists only in Christ, the true vine. Think about him. It's, uh, it's interesting that it says in Isaiah 58, bring the homeless poor into your house. That's what God's done for us. We enter into his courts, his courts, not just some courts that he likes, his. The Holy of Holies, that picture, where he dwells, he brought us poor, afflicted, into his house. And in showing respect to the unrespected, the ridiculed, the oppressed, the badgered, the belittled, the Zacchaeuses, Christ physically set the example for an eternal blessing that goes beyond respect to mercy and grace for the unlikely and the undeserving. Each temporal truth has its eternal counterpart, and it is beautiful. Our physical work that we are called to do is not the only work being done on this earth. We have to remember this, because we could get real busy. Okay, I heard the message. Let's go put together a bunch of projects. And we'll have a project here, and y'all do a project there, and we'll be real busy. And if we work hard enough, this will happen. Our work that we're doing on this earth is not the only work that's being done on this earth. Once we have done what God has commanded, a greater work is done, and a richer harvest is reaped by the hand of God. Consider in Isaiah 58, what does it say? We do what, we, what God has commanded, and then our light breaks forth like the dawn. Look at the order there. We do these things that God has commanded of us, and then our light breaks forth like the dawn. We're moving forward, and we are on the offensive, and we are doing things to be actively helpful, actively just, not just passively, like the whole seek to show hospitality. Don't just passively show hospitality when someone shows up at your door and knocks on it during dinner time when you have an extra plate. Sure, you can have dinner with us. Invite them over. You can't just passively show hospitality. You actively show it. And when we're on that offensive, we're actively doing things and we're moving forward. Suit it up the way God tells us to suit up. He doesn't leave our back open. It says that then shall your light break forth like the dawn. Your healing shall spring up. Your righteousness shall go before you. And the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. 
The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Is there anything that shines brighter than the light of the dawn, than the glory of the Lord? It shines bright. People can see his glory by the things you do, even physically, because of the work he's doing in the souls of men. When we do what God has told us to do, then our light breaks forth like the dawn. We have a tendency to think that as we are obeying, our light is breaking forth by our own hands. Not how it works. The reality revealed in Isaiah 58 is we produce fruit, hear obedience, by the hand of God as members of his vineyard, planted by him. And the actions taken are done in faith. This is the picture that James talks about of showing our faith by our works. And after we have done good works in faith, it is God's hand that affects a change in people's souls, like light breaking forth like the dawn. We can be tempted to put our hope in good kings. That's what one of the problems Israel had. They put their hope in a whole lot of people, but not God. We can be tempted to put our hope in good kings because you think, well, they're leading well and they're doing well and it's good and they're not being wicked, so let's put our hope in him. And God's saying, you missed the point. Put your hope in God only. We can also be tempted to put our hope in bad kings. Why? Why would we be tempted to put our hope in bad leadership? Well, it's because they still have power. Even though they're wicked, they still have power. And if I don't get on board with what they're doing, they may use that power against me and not for me. Or we could be tempted to put our hope in the allies of cowardly kings like Ahaz. Oh, you're making a treaty with the Assyrians? Okay, I'll make a treaty with the Assyrians. God reminds us through the prophet Isaiah that he is the one true God. If you call out to any other, you're not going to receive the help you need. If you call out to a person, a good king, a bad king, a cowardly king, or the allies of the cowardly king, you're not going to get what you really need. If you call out to a false God, God reminds us in Isaiah that, I'm sorry, you won't get the answer you want because they can't hear you. They're carved out of a piece of wood or whatever. They can't hear you. So they're not going to show up and bless your soul and save you from what you need to be saved from. You call out to another person, another God, they don't answer. But God says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind. I am God and there is none like me. So how do we stand firm and remember? Well, God says it's not enough to just show up to corporate worship in small groups. What is, what is this? What is it? going to be when we're living out what we are? I'm careful how I word that. Remember when Steve Roberts preached, he said, stop talking about what it looks like. What's this look like? It's what it is because of who we are as called by God. Well, it's not enough to just show up to corporate worship on time at 10. We start at 10 now, for those you who don't know. Or even just show up to small groups. That's what it said in the beginning of Isaiah 58. Even desiring to know more about God and grow in understanding and knowledge even just desiring those things is not enough because if you only desire it and you're not, you're not doing what he calls us to do, you don't reach a right knowledge. Seeking God daily is not enough. Being upset when he seems far is not enough. Delighting to draw near to God is not enough. In the midst of certainty and uncertainty, during the reign of good kings and bad kings, during the joy of freedom and the fear of oppression, there is a kingdom ethic that is to remain true to the people of God. A fruit appropriate to members of a vineyard planted by the hand of God. And that timeless ethic is to break the bonds of the afflicted, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, house the homeless, and respect the ridiculed and afflicted and the unrespectable. These things show that no matter what, our allegiance is to the one true God. Why are you feeding the hungry? Don't you know the economy is bad? My allegiance is to the one true God. Why are you housing the homeless? Don't you know it's hard for even wealthy people to get and keep a good home these days? My allegiance is to the one true God. Why are you focused on helping orphans when your own children need your attention? My allegiance is to the one true God. Why do you give a drink to the thirsty? They're just going to be thirsty again after you leave. Well, my allegiance is to the one true God. Why are you traveling to some third world stinkhole? Those people have always lived like that and they always will. My God says they're hungry. And my allegiance is to the one true God. And he tells me to care for the afflicted, 
He tells me to remain unstained by your hateful words so that I can visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction. The one true God does a work when I'm done (laughs) and as I'm doing it that breaks forth like the light of the dawn. It's so beyond us. In this temporal work, he reveals eternal truths about the bread of life. He reveals eternal truths about a river of living water that never runs dry. He shows these once homeless an eternal home that goes beyond their wildest dreams. And he shows those once in bondage that it's worse than they thought and they need Jesus to break their bondage to sin and they need to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Yes, this work will feel inefficient like every other part of ministry. Every other part of this three mile an hour walk we're on, it feels inefficient. Yes, you might be hated by the ones you try to help. The love of Christ has not caused all to repent. And I cannot expect that my love will cause them all to either. My grounds of giving is not based on their willingness to receive. It's based on the one who told me to give. My grounds of giving is not based on their willingness to say, okay, come help. It's based on the fact that I give because my God tells me to. From my God, I have received riches that will never perish. My God is my treasure. Their gods, lowercase g, gods will leave them hungry. Their gods will leave them wanting. Their gods will leave them thirsty and orphaned. Their gods will leave them naked and bound and disrespected, but my God won't. I fear being a bad steward. I fear wasting time and resources. I fear neglecting sheep because of hungry yet scheming goats who play the system. But I trust that the work that I do has its worth in the call of the master. I trust that the work that he calls us to has its worth within the scope of a much greater work that has been going on from before time was put in motion by the creator. God will redeem a people for his own glory. Those redeemed people will show justice. And the redeemed fight the feeling of futility that has to be fought. We fight the feeling of futility by not trusting in our own works. It's good to be obedient. It's good to do good works to prove that faith that you have because God's commanded it. But we don't trust in our works. Even if we spend hours and hours this week doing good works, you don't trust in them. But by letting our works serve as evidence of our faith in the one true God who we do desire that everyone has a relationship with. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. When I come to the end of a scriptural truth like this, I found myself sitting in my sitting studying and so God, what do you want us to do? <laughs> I said, I want you to feed the hungry, like I just said. I want you to clothe those who need clothes. I want you to house those who need homes. I want you to break the bonds of the afflicted. I want you to respect the disrespected and the unrespectable. So that's where we're going to be next week. How? How do we do this? What's the motivation behind how we do this? What are the practical realities of how we do this without being bad stewards? Remember, Jesus fed the multitudes. And when those whose hearts weren't in it came the next day and said, more please, he said, "Uh uh-uh, I know where you're at. You're just hungry. He showed shrewdness and stewardship and wisdom and insight and discernment, we need it. And that's where we're going to be going next week. The motivation behind how we're obedient to this and the practical application that goes beyond doing projects to being a people of justice, equity, care, and concern. Let's pray. Lord, your ways are clearly higher than our ways because we would never do this on our own. And if we tried to do it on our own, it wouldn't be by faith, so we'd screw the whole thing up. But you've chosen to reveal to us in a sobering way what you desire to see from us. I pray that we show up ready to engage the living God in worship. I pray that we are serious about our times of corporate worship. I pray that we delight to draw near to God. I pray that we seek you daily. I pray that we walk in the truth and talk about it in small groups. And I also pray that we do not abandon or neglect any portion of that which you've commanded of your people. And I pray that we don't proceed foolishly. I pray that we do 
what you call us to do. And I pray that we do it faithfully and wisely and humbly and submissively to the one who put the plan in place, to the one who planted the vineyard. We desire to be used by you, Lord. I pray that we would be a people of equity and of justice, a people who truly care the way you have told us to care. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We so do not deserve the unbelievable blessings that we have been given. And so we humbly come before you and pray these things in Jesus' sweet name. Amen. Scott was uh, preaching this morning. I was thinking about this passage in Matthew. Matthew chapter 25 says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? The king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And he goes on to contrast the goats that they didn't. Greg Field and I talked about this recently, and he said, you know, when we get to judgment, the Lord's not going to pass out a Scantron to make sure we got our ologies on. Believing rightly matters. You know that. If you've been here any period of time, you know that, man, we are passionate about the truth. But there's a potential to be passionate about the truth without living out what you've heard. The Ephesians did it. They guarded the truth, but they left their first love. And this is a, uh, it's a hard message to hear, frankly, because any of you have, who have ever ministered to the needy in any of these needy situations, you can attest to the fact that it's likely one of the most disappointing things you've ever done. Anybody? Anybody know that pain? Pouring yourself into someone, thinking, man, we're going to minister to them as God has ministered to us, and then you see them thumb their nose at you and at God. As Scott was preaching, I was thinking about what he's preaching about, what, he's, what God is telling us through this sermon this morning, is that we are to have a relentless ministry to the disappointing. If you wonder what God, what the gospel is, that's what God is doing toward us. A relentless ministry toward the disappointing. Anybody else disappointing? Anybody else fail? The one who ministers so well to us? That's a really hard thing. I look forward to next week's message engaging how to do this. Wisdom is key. Problem is we are so shrewd, we get so complicated that... Uh, we have the potential of explaining away even obedience. So hopefully we're leaning forward and being obedient in this. We're going to take the Lord's Supper here in these next couple minutes. And I have a passage I want to read to you, a story. It's a story of an anti-supper. We're taking the Lord's Supper week by week now and really see the Lord building into us kind of a, a supper ethic that helps us see what God is giving, giving us in the gospel, what he's given us in the church, what he's given us in a weekly meal together. Um, I'm going to share this story. It'll be familiar to some of you. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf 
And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Think about that. A golden calf. Looky there, Israel. This is what brought you out of the land of Egypt. It seemed like somebody would have said, uh, Wasn't that God? These are your gods. So when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast, the anti-supper. Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat, and they sat down to drink, and they rose up to play. If you think it's scary to think that we could week by week hear the gospel, hear the story, engage the truth, and not go worship in what we've heard, look at what they're doing. They sat down to eat and drink, and what they do, they rose up to play, play time. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the, implored the Lord, his God, and said, O oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you've brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self? And said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I've promised, I will give to your offspring. And they shall inherit forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides. On the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, no, it's the sound of shouting for victory or sound of cry or defeat, the sound of singing that I hear. As soon as he came near to the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses saw the anti-supper taking place. Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hand, and he broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made, and he burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. The water that was the, the rock that was struck, the rock that was Christ, the thing that had been giving them life is now become their curse. Drink it, ground it up into powder. Is sort of a, a curse chaser to their anti-supper. And then in verse 27, thus the Lord God of Israel said, put your sword on your side, each of you, the Levites, and go to and fro and from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 of the people fell in the last verse of the chapter, the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. We've got to know as we eat this meal this morning that we serve a very, very jealous God. A God who's rightfully jealous. A rightful, jealous God that serves us a proper meal. This should add a whole new meaning to a passage in 1 Corinthians, it says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. This meal that's a life meal becomes our curse if we enter into it as idolaters. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why so many of you are weak and ill and some have died. 
question for you to consider as we take the supper is, are you practicing our idolatry? It's scary to me how easy it is to do this. Idolatry is replacing anything with God. Are you looking for joy and satisfaction and identity and completion in anything other than God? That's idolatry. It's easy to do. Easy to do. Think of the Israelites with hearing this word that Scott took us to this morning, that they're taking in the truth each week. And it's sort of like they worship the truth instead of the God of the truth. We can love our ologies more than we love God and not actually do what he's engaging us to do. It's so easy to make a God of anything. God is to be our source of these things. Joy, happiness, completion, identity. He's where we go to for all these things. As we take this meal, that's what it reminds us of each week. He is not to compete with other joys or other meals. Are you eating and drinking and in a few minutes rising up to play? It's easy to do. Or will in the next few minutes you eat and drink and rise up to worship. Tuesday in your cubicle. Thursday in your kitchen when your wife has said something that just makes you so mad and you go, no, as an act of worship, as an act of worship, I will consider her as more important than myself. Will this meal invade the rest of your week? What I'd like for you to do as we're passing out the elements this morning I'd like for you to really self-examine. Just bow your head and pray. And say, Lord, am I being an idolater in any way? Am I looking to a woman to make me happy? That's a recipe for a miserable marriage. Am I looking to a job to make me happy? What happens when you lose it? Am I looking to my health to make me happy? What happens when you lose that? Do my kids make me happy? <laughs> Don't make your kids little gods. Only God can make you happy. Are you looking to anything else to nourish you in place of, key, in place of God? Just examine that in these next few minutes. Just close your eyes or bow your head or you can pray with your eyes open. There's nothing saying you have to have your eyes closed. But just say, Lord, search me and show me if I'm being an idolater in any way. Am I placing my way above your way, for example? Anything I'm doing in my life that's idolatry, show me that so that I don't eat and drink and rise up to go back to play and this meal become a meal of curse on you, but to actually be a life meal. If you identify something in your life that's idolatry, ask the Lord for, your, for his forgiveness. Ask him to bring you to repentance and then eat. You need this meal. Eat. Lord, we are thankful for this life meal. Lord, we pray that it is life-giving, not curse-bringing. Lord, we are thankful for your grace and your mercy and for the blood of Jesus that's so ample. Lord, we claim that blood and claim forgiveness in his work alone. Thankful for your goodness and your mercy. Lord, we sing, offer you these songs as our offering and um, pray that it will be a sweet aroma to you. In Christ's name, amen. I'm going I'm to dismiss you here in a second, but I just wanted to encourage you be okay with the um, difficult truths of the faith. I, I want to encourage you not to be satisfied with the safe. I, there's nothing safe about the faith. It's just, you know, there's natural man that's being disassembled week by week in this image of Christ, this Christ-like worshiper that's growing each week. And it's, it's challenging. And I hope this, this sermon this morning has challenged you. And uh, I encourage you to process some of these things in a small group. It's hard to process things in isolation. Uh, you can process them as families, as friends small groups. And that's where the concrete's poured this morning, and then it, it, it sets.
in community. So I encourage you to connect to small groups. If you're not connected, um, it's good. It's good medicine. Y'all stand and I'll dismiss you. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you so much for a, um, a, a story that's worth telling, a uh, gospel that's worth responding to. Lord, as we're engaging these sort of truths this morning, I pray that you'll guard us from doing anything outside of faith, even as a response to this. We pray that whatever we do in response to this message this morning, whatever we consider, whatever we examine, that it's faith-driven, that it smells like Christ, like an, uh, an aroma of worship to you. Lord, I pray that it will be difficult. I pray that it will be challenging. I pray that in some ways it will be frightening as we consider that we don't have the goods to do any of the things we're called to do. But where we run from fear to satisfaction that you have the goods and that you minister in and through us. Lord, I pray that you will grow this church in this direction, this much-needed direction. We love you, Lord. We thank you for Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all.